This is the Dreadful Podcast on TV Podcast Industries. We're here with part seven of our rewatch of Penny Dreadful. We're talking about season three, episodes four to six. Welcome back, fellow Penny Faithful. This is the Dreadful Podcast on TV Podcast Industries. We're into part seven of our retrospective of Penny Dreadful. We're talking about season three, episodes four to six. I'm one of your hosts, Derek. Hello there, fellow Darklings. Welcome to the dark side. I am one of your other hosts, John. Ooh, it is getting darker. <laughs> it is. Am I a blade of grass or a dandelion? Mm, yeah, I think a blade of grass. Everybody's a blade of grass. Yes. <laughs> Things have changed quite a lot since we started doing these podcasts about Penny Dreadful. We were trying to bank quite a few of them um, to make sure that we had them all available in all 26 episodes, 27 episodes of the show recorded before Penny Dreadful City of Angels began. And then COVID-19 hit around the world and... Uh, it's been kind of interesting seeing how things have changed quite significantly. Yes, definitely. I think we're just into um, the final stretch of a four-week lockdown, mm-hmm. basically. Two weeks of official, but I think for both of us working from home for two weeks before that. Yep. Um, certainly a lot of stuff going on um, for for people to keep uh, children, pets themselves entertained distracted continuing to work from home uh, getting to grips with all sorts of things so uh, we hope that uh, if you've had chance uh, you've been able to follow along with the penny dreadful podcast here mm-hmm. on dreadful podcast and um, certainly been really enjoying penny dreadful and um, and cannot wait to to get into City of Angels when that comes out on the 26th of April. Certainly a lot of TV now has been postponed or put back at least just either because of uh, production issues that have needed to be closed down. So all our Marvel stuff for this year really is going to be um, put back considerably. Yeah. Um, and of course, with films as well. So, uh, yeah, it will be interesting times. Yeah. Um, and, and interestingly enough, though, I've um, been seeing a lot of things in the podcast kind of arena to suggest that people maybe aren't listening to podcasts um as much as you would think mm-hmm. with uh, the lockdowns in place. Um, but I suppose... There's a lot of extra things to do, um, or even people are just finding the time to do stuff that they've been putting off for a long time. Yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, it's tough times. Yeah, well, I know commuting was definitely when I listened to podcasts most. And, yeah, absolutely. You know, definitely listen to podcasts when other people are in the house is really difficult as well. You know, you want to have it have the earphones in your ears and, and listen to it. I'm sure there's a lot of people who would listen to podcasts, um, you know, cleaning the house and doing things when they're at home on their own uh, in the house. But when you're surrounded by family and kids, maybe not uh, the best thing to be listening to podcasts. So we thank you so much for joining us this time. And we do hope we're providing a little bit of entertainment and a good look back at Penny Dreadful as we get towards the end, because this is part seven of our eight part retrospective series. So we only have one big part left. 
uh, as we go in, as we go to the close of uh, of Penny Dreadful, the first three seasons before we get into City of Angels. Yeah, um, and certainly we're we're about midway through with our coverage of episode four, Blade of Grass. Uh, for those who are listening to the individual uh, episode podcasts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as we've been saying, we've been releasing these podcasts first over on Patreon. You can see them at patreon.com slash TV Podcast Industries. Donate any amount over there and get access to all of the individual episodes. We're also releasing individual episodes over on dreadfulpodcast.com. And then these main ones, these big gathered together episodes are releasing on tvpodcastindustries.com our main feed for all of our podcasts yeah so please pop on over to our website at tvpodcastindustries.com where you can go to any good or evil podcast catcher of your choice you can check out penny dreadful city of angels our recent star trek uh, picard coverage there's also watchmen the boys and good omens Mm -hmm. from last year as well as Pennyworth, which was the Alfred Pennyworth um, kind of almost follow-up, I suppose, to Gotham uh, by the creators of Gotham. Mm -hmm. Um, And, of course, all our back catalogue of Marvel movies and the Marvel Netflix shows, which, yeah, Daredevil, it's five years today that uh, it got released on Marvel, season one of Daredevil, um, on Netflix, I should say. Mm -hmm. So. 2015. Gosh, I was going to say 1995 there. <laughs> 2015. <laughs> that's how old I am. Uh, yes, ten, five years. So uh, yeah, five years podcasting about the Marvel stuff. But yes, also we did have five seasons of Gotham as well that we podcasted about. All available on our feed over in TV Podcast Industries. But without further ado, let's get into our discussion about Season 3, Episode 4 of Penny Dreadful, A Blade of Grass. This episode was directed by Tau Frazier. This is his only episode of Penny Dreadful that he, uh, that he directed. Uh, but we have spoken about him a few times before. Funnily enough, mentioning Daredevil, he directed Daredevil Season 3, Episode 7, Aftermath. And he directed Season 2, Episode 3 of Iron Fist, The Deadly Secret. Really good second season for Iron Fist. And uh, Tao Frazier did a great job over there. Um, also worked with Vampires again on two episodes of Nosferatu. Ah. Uh, yeah, another show that we have in our queue to watch as well. So Yeah, great stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I this, this episode was, um, for me, a real grower. Um, I think... It- it, it, it felt a little weird uh, to begin with, um, mm-hmm. but certainly um, on, on rewatch, uh, I I really took to this uh, episode. Uh, I thought it was really clever. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. Uh, once again, written by showrunner John Logan. And I will say I'm a terrible podcast host, John. No, you're not. Because <laughs> guess what? I've been talking for two full seasons of Petty Dreadful and forgot to mention that this season we have our first credited staff writers on each episode of the show. The staff writers of Andrew Hinderaker and Kirsty Wilson-Cairns were brought on board at the start of Season 3, or at least given a credit from Episode 1 of Season 3. Every episode has had these two listed as staff writers, but I didn't see it in the credits of the of the episodes. And I've been saying the whole time that as soon as John Logan steps back and somebody else is helping him out, I'll mention it on the podcast, and I completely <laughs> forgot. So apologies, should have mentioned that back in Part 6. Uh, but Andrew Hinderaker and Kirsty Wilson-Cairns will be writing some episodes that we're going to be talking about as we go on uh, through our discussions. John, do you want to give us the official summary for this episode of Penny Dreadful? Sure. In order to better understand the plight that she has been given to deal with, Vanessa convinces Dr. Seward to hypnotize her so that she may relive her time in the clinic and remember her meeting with the master. In doing so, she discovers that the only person she ever saw in her room at the clinic was John Clare. A.K.A. the creature, A.K.A. the demon. 
aka many, many other characters in yes, this episode. So while she may have only seen one person, <laughs> he does embody a number of other characters. Uh, as you mentioned earlier on, yeah, this is an, a very interesting take on the flashback episode for the season. We did have a flashback episode in season one where we made our first visit to the Banning Clinic. And then in season two, we had the flashback episode with Joan Clayton. Now, now the same actress playing Dr. Seward in here. So now we have another flashback going back to Vanessa's time in the Banning Clinic and her time with who we assume is John Clare. We still haven't gotten his real name uh, in this episode. I think he's called The Orderly uh, in the credits for this episode. Yes, he is. He's The Orderly. Um, So yes, another persona for um, John Clare. Mm -hmm. This time, his previous life before um he he dies and gets obviously reanimated by by Victor Frankenstein yeah. and and certainly you know we get hints of his his family life here he mentions his son he mentions his wife mm-hmm. that we have seen in previous episodes so far uh, in the workhouse yeah. on hard times uh, after their their husband and father uh, had had died uh, we still don't know the reason for that um, I actually was convinced that in this flashback, at some point, Dracula, the master, was going to show up um, and just snap his neck. Yeah. I was just always on tenterhooks here, waiting for John Clare to be kind of uh, killed uh, by these supernatural uh, vampiric forces. Um, and that, that wasn't the case. So uh, still to kind of learn how he died in the end. I don't think we've had that. No, but we certainly um, it was uh, really, really good stuff. And yeah. I suppose to take it off, this is my big moment. Um, mm-hmm. This season three flashback for Vanessa. As I said, it's it's a grower. It's actually quite intimate because effectively it takes place um between four walls, between mm-hmm. two people, um, between Vanessa and John Clare as her orderly. Um, and it very much is a grower um, and it, almost a stage play. Um, yeah, and it, it, it's really nicely done. I just love how this is done uh, with Vanessa being under hypnosis by um, Dr. Seawood and reliving her time at the Banning Clinic mm-hmm. uh, in the padded cell. It just gets so good how Vanessa increasingly gets trapped within um her own consciousness as she has been hypnotized by by Dr. Seawood. And I, I love these moments where Dr. Seawood pops back into the cell as she's trying to connect with with Vanessa. And mm-hmm. over time, Dr. Seawood is saying, I've been trying to get you out of the hypnosis, but you're so far in, you are now lost within your own consciousness as you can imagine Vanessa being absolutely um, fraught to find out when did she meet the master in the Banning Clinic. And there's a great um, cigarette motif as well, where right at the start, as um, she's hypnotizing Vanessa, putting her under to try and find out uh, who the master is, um, she she lights up a cigarette and then in one of the, the revisits in the padded cell, when she's saying, I've lost you. I can't get you back. You're, you're trapped within your own consciousness. And Vanessa basically orders her to, to bring her back. She says, I've been trying. Um, I, I've been using cigarettes to burn you to yeah, try and yeah. sort of shock you out of this, um, hypnotism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's really good because at the end of the, the episode when Vanessa finally is brought back to, uh, reality and to the, 
the the real world in Doctor Seward's office. You see the burn on her hand. Mm-hmm. You see that the ashtray on Doctor Seward's desk is now absolutely filled with uh, cigarette butts. You can imagine yeah. Doctor Seward being completely um, panicked by by this situation yeah. and and raking through a ton of uh, cigarettes through nervous energy. Mm-hmm. I, I really like that. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. Is you know you wonder what exactly Seward is hearing the whole time. Is she hearing Vanessa's really descriptive version of what's going on in in her mind? You know, it, it gave me that kind of reminder of a good Nightmare on Elm Street. There were, what, nine Nightmare on Elm yeah. Street films? But that kind of interesting one where someone gets locked in a dream with the monster and they can't break out and the other characters are are trying to force them out of their dream before they get killed by the monster, effectively. So yeah. I love that kind of tension that you have of what exactly is going to happen in here. She's back in her memories, but she's present enough to know that she's there, reliving the memories, but also kind of doing it from a different style because she's got the guidance of Seward as well. So there's some interesting interplay where things are happening slightly differently than they would have happened at the time, but she's also reliving things that she didn't have a memory of before she went under hypnosis. So um, so interesting touches. You're trying to work out what's real here, what's actually happening, and what's a memory that she's locked off in her mind before her mind was taken out of her brain, effectively. Sorry. before <laughs> That's that's really confusing. Um, <laughs> before she had the lobotomy. That's a much easier way to say it, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And um, for me, it was reminiscent of the movie The Cell, actually. But I, oh, right. I definitely get the the point with uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. And mm. um, uh, The Cell was that kind of idea of playing with consciousness, trying to uh, find out sort of the motives of a of a serial killer mm. by using virtual reality and getting into the consciousness. Um, it was kind of part sci-fi, part horror. Yeah. Uh, had Jennifer Lopez in it, who I really liked. I really liked this movie. Although it was yeah. very visual, uh, but a similar thing of being trapped and Always the dangers. The movie, yeah. yeah, and the <laughs> dangers of being trapped as well yeah. within either your own consciousness. Oh, I think in the cell it was also getting trapped in someone else's consciousness mm-hmm. or someone being trapped in your consciousness. Um, it also had, speaking of Daredevil, Vincent D'Onofrio. Oh, fantastic. Um, so, yeah. And he was excellent in that. Mm. But um, Actually, yeah, most things really fits it off your head. Exactly. This is, but this is kind of a similar thing. You know, you're trapped within this padded cell. The metaphor of um, a effectively a, a, a psychiatric ward, padded cell, being trapped, being trapped within the hypnosis, mm-hmm. and and ultimately, you know, Vanessa's goal is to find out who is the master. But I, I do like the moments where um, her and John Clare as the orderly, you know, he's telling her about to get well to get better Mm -hmm. he's saying well the next treatment's worse you know you run through these treatments that you saw in season one of the hydrotherapy the um the electrocution and the electrotherapy uh to moving towards the lobotomy and he's trying to pull her out of this he he says you're you're just not well it's science it's not superstition um and I, i thought this was really Good, you know, there's yeah. some really touching moments as well. Well, she feels um, she's being tortured as well. Yeah. That's the thing. And the way we've seen it is how brutal this version of treatment is, the Banning Clinic, because they don't believe what's going on and what she's describing. So they're putting us, putting her through all of these treatments. Um, and it is the orderlies telling her, you know, these are, these are treatments. These aren't, they're not just doing it to torture you. Um, and you, you get the impression that Vanessa's not, uh, understanding that at all and, do, and doesn't want to go through any more of the torture. Um, but is forcing herself to go there because she's not, um, 
kind of denying what she's what she's seen and what she's done she would have had to deny it for banning to say okay actually you're safe and you can leave the institution um whereas because she's not denying it uh i guess similar to sarah connor maybe in terminator 2 is it that kind of idea you know how can you deny something that you know is real because she knows she's had this experience but nobody will believe her so she's going to be continually tortured or continually put through these treatments well that's the thing he 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 says it's not torture they're doing it's science Mm -hmm. um and i i kind of again you have these this these two dichotomies of the um the the belief and the superstition of vanessa and john clare as the orderly saying well this is a process they're trying to make you better Um, and gradually over time i think he realizes that whether he believes it or not she believes it and that that this is becoming torture and and he leaves but we we get some really nice kindness here from John Clare as well. And it's, it it feels very reminiscent of their meetings under the railway arches, um, with, with it, where all the cholera is taking place. But yeah. you know, after the electrotherapy, he effectively you know he brushes her hair, he applies makeup, he kind of pampers her a bit uh, and removes it before all the f- um, the orderlies that. Are on the daytime shift come in and he's like i don't believe in god but i will pray for you um and you know he he, he very much um s- starts to see that you know you have to get better yeah um the next stage is they're going to turn um to to surgery and they never come out the same uh so th- there is this connection here within this hypnotic state between the two and i like that because oh. of um certainly towards uh the the latter part of season two you have them having some really nice conversations mm-hmm. where the two of them uh, in in their present day form getting to know one another but finding commonality between each mm-hmm. other so i i really like that we had a question when we were talking about episode three whether um vanessa would actually realize this is the creature that she spoke to this is john clare who she met uh, back in season two and i still get the impression that she still hasn't made that connection um between the creature and this orderly that she that was working with her um rory kinnear is fantastic yeah, kind absolutely. of a little bit into my point as well because I, I just think what he does within the scene that moment when he's when he has taken the makeup off her and he says you know one day soon you will never have anyone touch you when you don't want to be touched and no one will put makeup on you and force you to do things that you you don't want to do i just think it's a beautiful moment between the two he's he's so empathetic towards her plight but he has to realize at some point if she doesn't follow the instructions that he gives she will go to the bottom and he can't bring himself to watch her go through that and that's why he leaves i think it's just a a beautiful idea that that he is trying his absolute best to try and get her to accept the therapy that she's being given he's an orderly in the hospital you know technically he's not supposed to be this involved with a patient but he realizes if he sees that spark go out in her eyes he'll have lost something great to himself. Yeah. You know, I think he even mentions at a time that he took the job because there's no other jobs in London. This is a really impoverished time in London. He says he he's working here because there's nothing else and he's giving up the job, going nowhere else to no other job. So is this an indication that this is why his family are on the breadline? Because he's given up this job because he couldn't witness Vanessa going through anything and he couldn't get a job afterwards it, you know? it probably is in conjunction then with his death and um, yeah. you know that they're, they're ultimately left destitute but i i think this is just a really 
great um, framing, a great bit of writing, this idea of between the worlds of, you know, Dr. Seward's consultation and Vanessa's own hypnotic state yeah. and what she's trying to recall. Um, and, and ultimately, and, until that moment within the episode, all she can remember is John Clare, is him as the orderly and, mm-hmm. and no other. And, and you're wondering where is this going to go uh, until that moment where... Um, and I suppose this is connecting into your point. Yeah. You, you get the dark eyes come uh, mm-hmm. across uh, John Clare's own eyes, uh, very reminiscent of what happened to Sir Malcolm, where he gets possessed. And it's something we also saw back in season one. We saw Ethan possessed when we had that fantastic moment in the exorcism episode. Um, when he gets possessed, his eyes turn black and he's speaking to her from, I think it's the voice of Lucifer. Is this when he, when the eyes go black? That's, that's yeah, Lucifer, right? I, definitely. I mean, here in, in this episode, his eyes go black. That's happened to Sir Malcolm and to Ethan mm-hmm. and, and it's Lucifer. Yeah. And when Dracula arrives, it's, there is a redness to the eyes, so yeah. that you it you've got that black pupil, but then it's surrounded by red. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm taking from that that all the other possessions uh, of Sir Malcolm in the family home mm-hmm. when he's with Vanessa, with Ethan during the exorcism or just before, yeah. they're all um, as Lucifer and Sir Malcolm in season two as well, where he upends his study. Yes, and um, as they're kind of getting close to the Verbus Diablo yeah. sort of decryption, uh, that. Uh, that's all Lucifer. So Vanessa here in this cell at this moment is is um, visited upon by Lucifer possessing the Orsley. Yeah, it's, it's such a good scene. Like when we have the whole series, really, the whole experience of Vanessa Ives boiled down to this one moment, really. It's, yeah. you know, we, we saw in season one there was the hidden master which we know now was dracula in season two it was lucifer who was chasing her soul and now we have the battle between these two brothers one who wants her soul and the other who wants her body and wants her to live at his side as her bride for eternity um not a great offer really that the two of them are putting on the table Uh, it's quite interesting when they're saying to someone i suppose as caring and loving as vanessa hopes she is underneath it all i suppose and the two of them are offering similar paths for her stand at my side and watch the world burn is lucifer's offer yeah and stand by my side as the creatures of the night come out and suck the blood out of the humans of this world is dracula's offer to her so not great offers if she isn't truly evil underneath it all but they seem to be to feel that she is the foretold partner for each of them um yeah that they can fight over that one of them will win and she will become the leader of darkness in the future you know i know she's said the verbus diablo and she's massively changed by her murder back in season two but i like that she has this internal battle in herself as to whether she will follow the dark path and choose one of these two or follow the light path and fight against the two well it, it, it's really this this is re- really nicely done I, I i love this where the the two fallen brothers uh the fallen angels from the great of God visits her in this cell and you you have the shadow of the snake moving across oh, towards her is. and then when um Dracula arrives you have the shadow of the bat and and in in both cases Vanessa is drawn Firstly, to Lucifer across the floor where he's giving her the offer. Mm-hmm. And then As the two of them crawl on their bellies yeah, across the floor. And, like and then death. pulls back and all the furniture is moved around as Lucifer's other fallen brother, Dracula, the king of beasts, arrives. Um, and 
again she's drawn to him and and plays up to him offering her neck mm. um but i i really liked how um lucifer seems cowed by by dracula yeah. it was kind of an interesting thing um they have this kind of nice sort of um sort of binary exp- explanation of it where it's like lucifer feeds on souls and, and dracula feeds on flesh mm-hmm. uh, one is of um the domain of the spirit the other of the animal um and, and one in reality and so actually where lucifer is maybe um he's slightly sort of powered down in a sense because yeah. he's not in uh his realm of souls and spirits yeah, maybe he, that's he, it, he's yeah. on earth yeah. um but that it, it certainly seemed that Dracula was the more confident here uh, of the two, yeah. and I, I like how um, it's that the, there's that uh, almost rivalry between these two brothers as well, um, and it all connects back as to that Verbis Diablo where Mister Lyle has explained these two brothers, Dracula on Earth, Lucifer uh, in the spirit world, and this is a really nice addition to. The Dracula story. I don't. I don't recall anything mm. where he is seen as being um, a fallen angel, uh, a brother to Lucifer. Yeah. And um, so this is really a, a nice uh, bit of um, mythical update or um, new story that John Logan's bringing here, which he's brought since season two. And yeah. I, I really like it. I like the idea of it. Absolutely. There's certain, certainly a lot in vampiric mythology, I suppose you'd call it now, because so many people have written about vampires. There's certainly a lot about them being demons and a lot about them being demons possessing a human and then turning them into this version of demons. I know Anne Rice has talked about it in that way before. I know Buffy the Vampire Slayer had that idea of them being demons as well. Um, and they're possessing the human form. But the idea of the, of the two of the, them being brothers, Lucifer and Dracula. I really love the concept of it. And as you say, I love the idea that potentially Lucifer feels less powerful than Dracula because you would kind of feel in mythology, Lucifer, the devil of hell, the controller of hell, the fallen angel with his army of fallen angels behind him. You would always think of him as being the more powerful and Dracula being, you know, a lesser demon who just sucks in the blood of humans, you know? Yeah, so exactly. having the two of them being not only equals, but brothers and Dracula being possibly much more powerful because he's able to have Lucifer cower in the corner while he makes his bid for Vanessa, I think is, is a really good, interesting touch because you just wouldn't, wouldn't see it like that. You'd almost see the two of them pitted against each other. Lucifer would win in the, in the versus battle between the two, but you see the power of, of Dracula here. It's yeah. really interesting. I think the other thing as well, it's, I like the fact that this moment with um, Lucifer and Dracula is almost another level into Vanessa's consciousness as well, because this whole section within the padded cell is is bookended by John Clare as the orderly asking the question, so why would the devil be interested in you? Mm-hmm. Which is really nice. Again, th- these layers of consciousness that she's uh, falling into, and and it's all yeah, almost like Inception. Yeah, she needs <laughs> that jolt. Uh, in, in this case, that the cigarette butt doesn't work. But um, I, and I really like that uh, aspect to it as well. But ultimately, Vanessa comes back a level by turning oh. the tables on Dracula and Lucifer herself with. Uh, speaking the verbis Diablo. Um, and it all comes from Dracula saying, well, who are you to disobey me? And she's like, um, I'm nothing, no one. And it 
comes to just a blade of grass. Mm -hmm. Again, the blade of grass motif has been discussed previously yeah. uh, when John Clare brings her um, a, a children's poetry book. Uh, and I like the, also the fact that John Clare says, I don't really like poetry because he's so obsessed by poetry as the creature. That's true, yeah. Um, yeah. But it's that... Um, I am just a blade of grass. And she, you know, she talks about her protector being God, but it's, it, it's a really interesting thing. And I, I'm not really fully clear on, on the law or the superstition, maybe, but, you know, she absolutely does have her foot, uh, with, um, and herself with God as her protector. Mm -hmm. Yet there is a, an evil within her that she speaks as verbis diablo. Yeah. Um, it's almost like, is this God's secret weapon as well? And that's why she needs the wolf um, to be able to turn the tables yeah. on Dracula and Lucifer with effectively their own trickery um, and uh, evil. Yeah, well, absolutely. I think the, the central mythology, I suppose, of, of Christianity is that we are all God's children, but we were given a choice to choose either the path of good or the path of evil. And throughout this kind of recap of what's going on with Vanessa throughout this, what we're hearing from both Lucifer and Dracula is she must make her choice to go to them. They can't force her to go with them. And she is choosing the path of righteousness. She's saying, my soul is mine alone. And she said this back in episode eight yeah. of season one or episode seven of season one. She said, it's my soul. I choose to keep it and you will never make me give it up. And here she's saying it again. She's saying, my God is the one that I follow. He's my protector. And I'm still not making the choice to go with either of your plans to burn the world, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, which I love. It, it's, it shows that power of the character of Vanessa because she still believes I'm just a blade of grass. I am nothing. God looks at me at a blade of grass and you think that's a bad thing, but I belong here. And I'm able to make my choice and my choice repels both of you. And it is fabulous. Really, really good, strong one. Um, that's, that's my big moment from the episode. And that's your big moment. Just to kind of wrap it up. Uh, for me, this episode is the reason why it's so good is because you could put this on stage and call it Penny Dreadful the entire series and have three actors in the roles. And that's it because this battle is boiled down to this moment, really, before Vanessa. Yeah, absolutely. You, know, you don't really need anything else. I love all the other characters, and I love the story of the three seasons, obviously, of course, but having this battle raging in the mind of Vanessa with just those two other characters is great. And I must say, I can see why Rory, Rory Kinnear is coming back for City yeah. of Angels. If he's given stuff like this to do again, he'd work with John Logan over and over again. Definitely. I mean, this is the heart of the matter, isn't it? Mm -hmm. This is why there is the company around Vanessa of Sir Malcolm, of Ethan. Okay, they're 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 flung to the, the corners of the, the world in, in this season. Yeah. Um but it, it it's an interesting kind of uh, switch that she is now having to fight it uh, alone uh, and I, I, when she is pulled back into Dr. Seawood's uh, office you know she goes I, I'm no longer um, afraid I have a name his name is Dracula Absolutely. and it finishes on that and it's the th this person who is um, baiting her is the scourge of her and um, has been nameless and that's part of his power mm -hmm. and now she knows who uh, he is what the name is and can begin to find out about uh this this being this fallen brother um 
Dracula. So really, really nicely done, I, I thought here. Oh, it's fabulous. I love that. That's the response to Dr. Seward's uh, comment to her before that um, we name things so they do not frighten us. I am not frightened. It's such a, a powerful little moment from Vanessa. There. Yeah. yeah. Really, really good. Uh, any other notes on this episode before we close, Matt? Um, just simply the, the little model ship that we saw in the workhouse, I think, in episode two or three, John Clare talks about the model ship being built with his son. Oh, very good. Um, and uh, I thought that was uh, really nice here. Um, it's just a nice little touch between these two um, aspects of of John Clare. Um, and again, I think for me, I really want to know how John Clare died. Obviously, some massive uh, facial scarring, so I presume it wasn't pretty, but um, uh, really, really nicely done here. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I love the touches of bringing stuff like that back to the show after after episodes. Uh, you know, I think that's something that that they do quite regularly on uh, on Penny Dreadful. It's really cool. Um, I did like the kind of antagonistic moment between Lucifer and Dracula, where Dracula says to Lucifer, um, "I know I exist, but do you exist? If people don't believe in you, will you just collapse and fall apart?" I think that's a really interesting kind of attack on lucifer um it's something that reminded me kind of of american gods the neil gaiman story the idea that gods disappear if if their worshippers disappear so lucifer needs to continually stoke the flames of who he is and and gather more and more followers to keep him alive whereas dracula is kind of saying well i'm alive because i suck the blood of people and i kill people I, i know i'm here do you know you're here? I think that's quite an interesting, uh, interesting kind of antagonistic relationship between the two. Well, that's it. I think it, it comes back to that he is in his element because he can feed on the flesh, mm-hmm. and that's where he draws his power. Lucifer can only effectively. We're being told by Dracula he consumes souls, yeah. um, and he's out of the spirit world, so he can't consume it. I think if the tables were reversed and Dracula was in lucifer's domain mm-hmm. i think you would see that lucifer is more powerful, Much more powerful. Yeah. um and i think that's to the interesting point that in the in the the real world in in the uh the world made flesh i suppose and uh, to speak biblically about it <laughs> um it, it's that lucifer's power can only come from being believed in yeah. um, because he's got nothing to feed in. He feeds off that, that spiritual energy of people believing in him. Yeah. But it is, it's really nicely done. And it as is. you say, really connects into uh, the American God um, book by Neil Gaiman mm-hmm. about whether, you know, some of the ancient uh, gods or lesser known gods, like, like with Thor with the, uh, in, in Norse mythology, um, in, in terms of, uh, Anansi, uh, within African mm-hmm. mythology and, and spirituality that the, um, e- even the, the genie from, um, Middle East, uh, mm-hmm. mythology, uh, that these have lost power because people no longer believe, yeah. uh, in them. But yeah. thanks to Disney, their power is returning. Yeah. <laughs> Well, exactly. Yeah. Maybe there'll be an, an Anansi <laughs> movie coming soon as well. Um, <laughs> so final question on the episode before we close it out. One thing that was popping into my head, because this is a very interesting mechanism of how they're going back into Vanessa's mind. It's the hypnotism. It's her remembering things that maybe she had locked off in her mind before the lobotomy happened. Is this a power of Lucifer and Dracula that they can possess someone? So did they actually possess the orderly? Or is this something that happened in Vanessa's mind where 
both of them were f- having a battle within her mind and what's happening on screen is we're seeing this play out with the actor Rory Kinnear playing both parts. <laughs> I, I, I think that is the 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 big thing. We we have the um, familiar say to Vanessa that you have met the master before mm-hmm. um, in the the white cell. So I think this did happen. Yeah. But she, with the lobotomy, with all the therapy, it's something that has gone from her memory. Yes. So yes. I think it is something that she is seeing. And maybe with the Dracula, because his his control of other people, normally it's the idea of mesmerism, mm-hmm. so that he has maybe mesmerized the orderly, whereas Lucifer has possessed him. Um, and that's how it's coming here. Right. But again, it, it could have been in... A, it could have been in two separate instances, but here it's been brought together yeah. in her mind. And I, I think it's that she is receiving kind of the messages from Lucifer and Dracula within her brain. And this is how she visualized it, yeah. I suppose, is using the orderly. The reason why I say that is just because I don't think she mentions after this happened. She's still Compass Mantis. She has her head shaved. She goes back one more time to say goodbye to the orderly almost in her in this hypnotism. Uh, she stays within the hypnotism to say, to say goodbye to the orderly as he's about to leave. And she never mentions it once. She never talks about the possession in any way to no. him. So it, it feels like this was a visualization of what happened using the mind of the orderly. Um, so. Because within within the padded cell, he asks her the question, so why would the devil be interested yeah. in you? And then after that, he asks it again. She's zoned out. So I think this is another level within the consciousness. Mm -hmm. So he was never there. There She is visualizing it. Yeah, Yeah. because it's interesting. I'm just wondering, you know, are there there going to be instances in the last couple of episodes where Dracula possesses somebody else beside her, like Lucifer had done with Malcolm and Ethan in the past? Yeah. But he may not. He may not be a power of his. It's just a question I had after watching the I think the Dracula's always been about mesmerism yeah. rather than possession. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. And controlling people to do his bidding yeah. rather than possession. Yeah, interesting. Interesting stuff. That's it for our discussion of A Blade of Grass, the fourth episode of season three of Penny's Redfall. We'll take a break. We'll be back after this short message from Into the Night, the Moon Knight podcast. Hi, I'm one of the high priests of Conchu Ray, and I have the sacred privilege of providing you, the loony listener, with a podcast honoring Marvel's very own Moon Knight. So join me and a host of others at Into the Night, a Moon Knight podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or support the show by becoming a Patreon member. Into the Night, a Moon Knight podcast. It's time to get your Conchu on. And we're back. Welcome back, fellow Betty Faithful. We're talking about Season 3, Episode 5, The World is Our Hell. I'm one of your hosts, Derek. Hello there, fellow Darklings. I am one of your other hosts, John. world is kind of hell at the moment, as we said earlier. It really is, yeah. <laughs> the world is going to hell uh, with lockdown in full swing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we've already talked about that, so we're not going to dwell on it. We're going to just talk straight in about this episode of Penny Dreadful Season 3, Episode 5, This World is Our Hell, was directed by Paco Cabezas. This is his first episode of Penny Dreadful, but he directs three of the final four episodes of Penny Dreadful, and he is directing Episode 1 of Penny Dreadful, City of Angels. Ah, very good. Yes, entitled Santa Muerte. 
as we discover some very interesting Mexican mythology coming up in uh, that series of Penny Dreadful. Looking forward to that. Yeah, definitely. And it's time. This episode was written by Andrew Hinderaker, not by John Logan. Wow. <laughs> yes, uh, he has been a staff writer on all of this season, uh, but this is the first time another, another writer has gotten a credit for this, ep- for this show. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a really good episode, this one. Uh, I really loved it. So um, fair plays. And to be honest, if you're a staff writer with John Logan, a bit of that Loganism is bound to rub off on you as well. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, Andrew's currently working on a science fiction series called Away, about an American astronaut about to leave Earth for a dangerous mission with an international crew. So very different to his experience running off to uh, the wild, wild west in this episode. But maybe it, it merges a little bit of horror into um, the science fiction there. I dare I say it, um, leaving Earth for a dangerous mission with an international crew. What could possibly go wrong with that? <laughs> I'm sure it's absolutely grand. <laughs> John, do you want to give us the synopsis for this episode? Sure. Ethan and Hecate, Sir Malcolm and Kaetne, and Inspector Rusk and the Rangers all continue the trek across the Western landscape. Frankenstein and Jekyll, meanwhile in London, test their modified serum on their subject with miraculous results. Hecate encourages Ethan to embrace his dark side. They also reveal secrets to one another, bringing them closer. With Ethan's agreement, she summons rattlesnakes to kill the rangers. Mm-hmm. Rusk and Osto survive, although Kaetne is bitten. Ethan appears to accept his darkness more and more and makes love to Hecate. In the desert, Ethan's horse collapses, then later Hecate's, forcing them to continue on foot. Hecate later collapses from the heat and is barely alive when Sir Malcolm arrives with Kaetne, also barely alive. Sir Malcolm attempts to murder Hecate, but Ethan won't allow it. Riders, summoned by Ethan's father, Jared Talbot, arrive and take them to his estate, leaving Kaetne to die at the request of Ethan. Sir Malcolm is unhappy with this, but Jared Talbot requests Sir Malcolm's assistance in dealing with Ethan. He shows Ethan the room where their family died at the hands of Native Americans, saying that he will pay for his hand in it, aiming his pistol at him and demanding he repent then and there, on pain of death and damnation. Who finally, from episode one of season one, we never knew what was happening with Ethan, why he was on the run, what was going on with him, and this episode gives us all of those stories all wrapped up in one episode. Yeah, definitely. Uh, What a great episode this Mm -hmm. is, yeah. And interestingly, it's only one of two episodes of the entire show that don't feature Vanessa Ives. Yes, Interesting, isn't it, that you have uh, an episode. Maybe that's the reason why uh, John Logan wasn't writing the episode. He was like, okay, you can have this episode, but you're not having Vanessa. <laughs> maybe that's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe not, maybe not. But uh, but a really fascinating final um, discussion, I suppose, about the history of Ethan that yeah. we get in here. And I know that that kind of features in our major points. John, what's your big moment from this episode? Dare I say it, it's almost two big moments. Um, mm-hmm. I'm starting with a quote, not too different, you and I. Yes, Hecate and Ethan grow closer together um, as Ethan embraces uh, his dark side. And mm. um, yeah, I really, I really enjoyed um, this because 
it's something I actually wasn't really expecting of Ethan. Certainly because of his chivalry to, with Vanessa mm -hmm. and certainly felt like he was embracing that. But Hecate has been tempting him since season two. That great moment where she comes into his room and then leaves through the mirror mm -hmm. to give um, or to offer him uh, to stand by his side. Uh, and effectively, rather than being the lupus day, I suppose being the lupus Diablo. Yeah. Um, and right. so I, I think this is a really uh, great moment here. Uh, I, I think what I really liked here was, you know, Hecate saying, like Ethan, you know, she didn't get to choose the master that she serves. Her mother, Miss Poole or Madame Carly, enlisted her at five and she describes how Lucifer raked his claws across her body. Mm. And I, I thought this was um, a, a really kind of nice um, reflection of Ethan also, um, you know, talking about how he, he um, came to atone for this killing of uh, Native Americans. Um, he, he talks about this attack on, on, on a, a, a tribe and his his commanding officer uh, in, in the U.S. Army, who he ultimately kills because he's brought this boy and dumps the the body to to poison the water and mm -hmm. to further kill um, the the Native Americans, and so he kills his commanding officer after this slaughter, um, and uh, we get this really um, great moment, and this is one of the big things I really uh, loved, um, it, uh, dare I say it, loving the law. Um, I, I really enjoyed how this story that Ethan describes is also told um, simultaneously by Kaetni to Sir Malcolm. Yeah. Uh, and they move between um, the, the two tellings of this, how Ethan uh, really came to Kaetni and his tribe to atone. He wanted to be killed, to be scalped, and to die uh, for killing his people. But as Kaetni says, I thought it would be better to keep him alive and to fight uh, with us. Um, and um, it's, it's just lovely how... And uh, they move from Ethan to Ketney as this story uh, unfolds mm -hmm. and how Ethan fought with the Apaches so much. He almost reveled in it because he took to it to redeem himself. And they, they talk that it's actually I, I found it quite poignant where Ketney says, you know, they sent 5000 soldiers to hunt down 39 free Apaches, yeah. you know, as 10 were killed, 100 would take uh, their their place. But as um as the Apaches were killed off, then, you know, ultimately their warfare became more brutal, more, more, um, cruel. Mm -hmm. Um, and he, he talks how Ethan did unspeakable, uh, things. And again, it flips back to Hecate where God watched this unfold and laugh. And again, it, it, she's trying to attract Ethan to her. Um, and, uh, you really get this moment then again, where you have this simultaneous attack on the marshal's camp uh, in the dark, where both Kaetney and Sir Malcolm are going in to, to kill the rangers and, and release the horses. But um, for for Ethan, he this is the moment where he is, um, I suppose he goes, I'm done trying to be good. Um, and and asks her to call forth the, the the rattlesnakes, but she needs his 
blood. That is the thing that has um the power. And she she as she's incanting, um, which is really nicely done, how she's moving her hands through yeah. the sand, yeah. and she goes, My master makes beautiful music. Um as you see these um snakes coming through underneath the sand and popping up uh, to then uh bite and attack the mm-hmm. marshal's camp as and Kaetney's there ready to this great little moment where he sees the snakes coming up. Um, and as the snake comes up to bite effectively him, he slits the throat of the ranger and takes the, the head off the snake. Yeah. Uh, what a cool shot that was. Uh, really, really liked it. Yeah. It was really, really good. Really dynamic shot. Really yeah. I, I just loved. It moving between Ethan and Ketney. There's obviously mm-hmm. a history there. There's there's this idea that Ketney is also his father or one of his fathers. Certainly um, a creator of who Ethan became. Exactly. Yeah. And um it, it's just really, really nicely done. Yeah. I, I thought I really enjoyed moving between Ketney, Samalcolm, Ethan and Hecate as Ethan descends. And, and is taken in more and more by Hecate, where he kind of gives up and releases himself to his his darker uh, inner feelings, yeah. uh, which, you know, in terms of his time in the U.S. Army, he has had many. Uh, it's almost, you could say, um, being in London with Vanessa was the aberration here for for Ethan Chandler yeah, you know he he um, massacred native americans mm-hmm. he then massacred uh us army soldiers with the apaches in yeah. revenge um and yeah you you get the sense that the apaches having been sort of wattled down uh, to 39 uh, as um, as Katney says yeah. just for pure survival became crueler, more brutal. And mm-hmm. this was also certainly something that Ethan did. So it's, it, I, I found this really, really good. Um, and I, I like kind of where you effect- effectively get naughty, rumpy, pumpy in the cave between Hecate and, and <laughs> Ethan, where there's a bit of, uh, dare I say it, devil worshipping with uh, the two as they make love. But uh-huh. it comes from having this, story of the first apache uh that is um drawn in cave paintings where they're kind of uh hanging out and that was I, really cool it was yeah. really um nicely done I, I i really liked that and again it cuts back to Kearney talking about his vision uh, of darkness in the streets of london mm. uh where it's there's the creatures of the the night are roaming and you have he sees his son who he must save mm-hmm. uh, that's why he's effectively uh, with samalcolm is this idea of saving uh, ethan because all the world will turn dark and the creatures of the night will will come upon the earth yeah. um, at the same time where you've got ethan um saying the great coyote opens the bag uh filled with darkness and the creatures of the night all sort of release and but are fought off by this boy called apache uh, who wins back the day um and uh you know it, it's this really nice moment and um, that it was the beginning um of the day the new dawn or is it the end of the darkness and mm. it depends on which side you're on um and i think hecate says this quite nicely with 
Are you the savior that banishes the night or the wolf that loves it? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is really where Ethan has to make that choice. And you, you really get the sense here that he's descending into the latter, that he will be the wolf that loves the night. And he seems certainly intent on killing his father um, and and laying waste to all his fathers, probably, both Kaetne and Jared Talbot, mm-hmm. um, less so with Sir Malcolm. Um, I, true, yeah. I do like that moment where they meet um, after the horses uh-huh. um, have have uh, died and Hecate's on her last legs and he's kind of like, what the hell are you doing yeah, here? I think that's like a that, really yeah. nice moment. Yeah. <laughs> that's really good. I love that Sir Malcolm's kind of, well, always have to expect that I'm going to turn up anywhere, you know. Uh, really interesting. But the juxtaposition between this episode and last episode and this rewatch was so apparent um, where you had last episode, where you had um, the temptation of Vanessa from these two demons saying that they want her soul and her body and she saying to them well I have a choice and my choice is the is the light side whereas this time you have the temptation of Hecate to Ethan and him going well actually I've always been the darkness and I'm going to take that as my choice and join up yeah. side by side with you and it, it's very strong within the episode there's certainly moments where it's not truly a choice to be dark with Ethan because you can absolutely tell that his soul is still torn apart inside there's some wonderful acting in this uh, in this episode from Josh Hartner where the the moment that I'm going to talk about of course um, where Ethan is torn up inside but he's made his choice now and he's going to follow it through even if he knows it's probably the wrong decision um, you can really see that playing in, in him uh, even when he leaves Kretney behind to die um, you can see him saying leave him here to die but you know that he's torn up inside that it may not be the greatest thing that he's doing right now but he's going to the dark side um, yeah well he says don't waste a bullet on him and yeah. just let him burn um, and you wonder whether that's a choice you wonder whether he's kind of saying as you know the audience are kind of going well Ethan's the good guy he's not going to let Ketney die so maybe he's telling them to leave him alone and not kill him because he thinks Ketney can get out of the situation yeah but um, it's one of those ones where even I'm not sure after watching the episode multiple times, I'm still not sure whether he was definitely intending for Ketna to die or whether he thinks Ketna will come back. Um, and this is the only way to to leave him behind without killing him gives him a chance to live. I yeah, suppose. because they are more than willing to shoot a Native American mm-hmm. or an Apache. Um, as they've done multiple yeah, times. Before, I think yeah. as well, you know, he 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 stops Sir Malcolm from killing Hecate as well. Mal- Sir Malcolm's very, uh, he's got his um, his gun, mm-hmm. he's got his semi-automatic, and he's more than willing to put a few uh, bullets into Hecate. Yeah, and uh, but he's stopped by by Ethan. So it really feels like Ethan has now come with uh, Hecate uh, in more ways than one. Certainly. Dare I say it? <laughs> yes, um, and uh, yeah, just really. Um, I, I really liked how um, all these different storylines mm-hmm. intermingled uh, in this episode yeah. uh, as well. And one other thing I liked uh, in those scenes the, with the attack of the snakes on um, on the camp of, of uh, Inspector Rusk. I guess he's still Inspector Rusk now. Does he have another title? I can't remember. Does he have another? Is he Marshal Rusk now or something like no, that? No, he's Inspector Rusk. Inspector Rusk. Rusk yeah. still. Um, but I, I liked his reaction to the attack, which is basically, yeah. well, that's it. There's no bringing this guy back now. I'm going to go over and I will shoot Ethan in the back and butcher him and all of his kind now for what he's done, what he's made me go through to chase him down. I think that's a really interesting change for the character of Russ because he was such um, an interesting character throughout season two. He was the investigator. He absolutely would follow all the leads to their nth point. He was a very patient type of person, but that's it. He's done now. 
Yeah, I, I think so. I think uh, that revengeful Rusk where he says, you know, I disavow any former code that I have is really good. You know, he he's lost his deputy and mm-hmm. um, uh, he was shot by Samalcom. Um, so because Samalcom is releasing the horses and the deputy sees him and it gets shot by Samalcom ultimately. Um, so it, it's really, um, yeah, th- this revengeful Inspector Rusk, I, I think, is really uh, great to, to see. I think the other thing I really like um, with Ethan and Hecate, you know, where she's saying, I want to rule the darkness uh, at your side to liberate you and your demonry, your shame, your guilt, um, embrace your sins to free uh, yourself from your guilt. Um, and... Ethan talks about washing his his hands, that idea of washing mm. your sin away because of the blood from this um, massacre of the Apaches that he's done. Um, and what I, I think this connects in quite nicely is back in London with uh, Victor and, and Dr. Jekyll, where they're working on improving this serum effectively to wash away the sins of the subject that they're using, but ultimately Lily. Um, It's just washing away the sin either by science through Dr. Jekyll's serum and the improved serum, uh, or by this this superstition of of whether you believe in God and and you wash your sins away through forgiveness or washing away your sins by effectively embracing them to free you from any guilt that you may have. So I thought that was quite a nice little connection. That's really good, yeah. That's really interesting. And again, the offer from Hecate to Ethan to give up his forgiving God. I love, I love her reaction to him, kind of going, "You think he's forgiving? Do you feel forgiven? Do you feel that you know all yeah. of the things, all the sins you've committed are actually forgiven by anybody, or do you want to just accept them and go to the darkness that you know is there?" I think it's a a really interesting proposition from her because it it is again similar. Even though she feels she's separated from Lucifer, it is similar to the type of offer that Lucifer made to uh, to Vanessa in the past as well. I'm going to just move it on to my big moment from the episode. If you're yeah, absolutely, yours. yeah. Um, I just think the scene in the chapel at, at the uh, the Talbot Estate, I guess we're going to call it, um, with Jared Talbot, uh, the the new character that we haven't seen before, played by Brian Cox, um, it shows you why Brian Cox, I think, is such a revered actor in in this scene where he brings Ethan into the chapel and tells him how his brother first was killed and then his uh, his sister had her tongue cut out and her eye her eyes cut out and then left to wander in the uh, in the desert um his mother was killed and all because Ethan didn't raise a hand to stop the Apaches from doing what they did. Um, Ethan tells the story that he led them there because they needed supplies, they needed, uh, they needed everything. And Ethan had the plans for the house in order to get all of this stuff from his very rich and very wealthy father in his past. But it sounds like he went in, to, got the horses and just stayed there and let the Apaches do whatever they wanted to do. He didn't stand in their way. So that's where the blame is coming from, from uh, from Jared here. But it's a wonderfully played scene between the two, oh, definitely. The two of them. Uh, as I mentioned earlier on, you can fe- really feel it ripping into Ethan's heart when he's being told to accept it, acknowledge it, repent for it, or wallow in death and damnation for the, for eternity, effectively. So another time of ripping the soul of ethan really um i just think it's a fabulous scene between the two of them and, and brian cox just plays it so well yeah definitely um like it, he he delivers that line you brought the devil to my door and gave him the keys mm-hmm. and he delivers it in a way that is quite frankly just a, a, amazing yeah and and the great thing here is you 
you know, you are expecting Ethan to go um, effectively batshit crazy on him. You are <laughs> expecting him to go dark, and even with the gun pointed at him, uh, as Jared is walking him through um, the the scene of how his brother Paul was slaughtered, how his sister suffered, yeah. um, you know, having a, her tongue and her eyes cut out so that she was mute and blind, uh, and ultimately then... Uh, with the death of and murder of uh, his, his his mother yeah. as well, all of them killed at the hands of the Apache that he led here in order to get supplies. And I suppose they saw this as another chance mm-hmm. to um, survive. And this was someone who would have had no qualms at killing Apaches. You know, yeah. they ha- they had no idea of land ownership in in the same sense that. Um, he would have done so for him they were always these trespassers on his land mm-hmm. not that he had even taken theirs this idea of as well seeing them as savage compared to their christio uh western religion mm-hmm. um and yet you know the brutality is is still there with them and i i thought this was um really just so so well done yeah i also really loved the scenes between uh jared talbot and sir malcolm murray because Mm. it was that idea of um looking at one another it was a mirror of themselves and in a sense sir malcolm has changed i think um probably from his um at maybe his last um expedition in africa certainly by having sembene there i think that there are certain elements where he has moved on from that colonial exploitation of empire even though he was a part of that but mm-hmm. he he's seen what that what that has done and he recognizes in jared what he used to be yeah. and feels that he can change him and jared just puts that history back on him to say have you done anything differently you know ask the tribes in africa mm-hmm. um how benevolent and caring you are to them so i i thought that was i, I thought those exchanges were really superb as yeah. well because they are very similar characters you know that's that's part of the reason i suppose why that uh, relationship developed between ethan and malcolm the way it has because um Malcolm's saying that he can see the experience that uh, that Jared's gone through in the experiences he went through with his own children. And as you say, telling him to put it all aside because you can never mend that relationship with your son unless you try effectively. So it is interesting that it's thrown back in his face by Jared before this final conf- confrontation between the two of them in, at the end of this episode. But it is a wonderful episode. And, and again, going through this rewatch of the series from episode one, all we had was this guy was a gunslinger on the run from America, effectively taken on as a hired gun by Malcolm and, and the team and brought into this world. And now in the third season, we're finally getting an explanation for who he really is underneath it all. And it's dark and dirty. Like it's, yeah. it's he's not running away as a survivor of an attack or something like that. He's the one that didn't lift a finger to stop the murder of his family. Yeah, exactly. And he also murdered his former compatriots. And previously to that, he murdered the Apaches at the request of the U.S. Army. Dirty, dark past that we probably didn't expect the first time we watched the show. I don't think we expected it to be this bad, I suppose. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think the other thing as well is with Jared Talbot, he says, I've left everything the way that it, it was on that night, you mm. know, with the exception of the bodies. But yeah. the chapel, the the family chapel, you know, is bloodstained. Yeah. Uh, the the pews are are messed up. They're, they're strewn around the, the chapel. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it is. It, it's all in this moonlight as well, which gives it a really atmospheric uh, moment. I... I did think that was it a full moon and were we going to see Ethan change to extract his revenge on his father uh, you know embrace what Hecate has been saying uh, by turning into the wolf and and attacking him so Mm -hmm. I I thought this was um, really really superb yeah yeah absolutely that was my one note at the end of the episode so while we do get the history of Ethan and where why he was on the run I suppose we still don't get the reason why he's a werewolf we don't get his creation or uh what it was that has led him to be a werewolf maybe that's coming up in the last four episodes of the season um but what made him the lupus day when is that point that he changed into the werewolf uh we haven't got that yet so i'm looking forward to that little bit of mythology to tie up his storyline definitely any notes at the end of this episode, John? Um, just the the little whiskey reference, the nice little moment between Jared and um, Samalcom before yeah. their great verbal standoff, uh, where he hands him a uh, an American bourbon uh, by William Larue Weller, and mm-hmm. um, where he has is using wheat instead of rye in the mash, yes. uh, and that is why he is a pioneer. He's switched up the the American bourbon industry uh, mm-hmm. in, in one foul swoop, um, and Smalcom seems to really quite enjoy it. Um, so Jared does promise him that he will be sent back to to England with a case. There'll be no drinking of that Scottish muck that he says, which I'm sure... <laughs> For Brian Cox, as a Scotsman, he must have realised the the little in joke that was being done by the writers there to get him to say that. Uh, he <laughs> must have Scottish. That's yeah, really he good must one. have been he must have been cursing uh, them and hoping to set Lupus Day onto those writers. <laughs> uh, and uh, the. Uh, that was exactly the same note that I had just because we've done so whiskey watch so often over the, over the years of the podcast. It's still in existence today that the, it's WL Weller is, is what it's called, the, the bourbon type, but it's still in existence today and apparently still quite a revered, uh, bourbon. Yeah, very good. Yeah, there you go. But that's it. That's all the notes I had for the episode as well. I, I wanted to just mention, obviously, about uh, Dr. Frankenstein and Dr. Jekyll uh, working on their serum, but you already mentioned that earlier on as well. So, um, it, it's interesting that most of this episode takes place in the West, in, in America. There's not much taking place in, in London, um, which is probably the first time that we've had such a small amount. And it feels like with Jekyll and uh, Frankenstein's story, the scene that's there could actually have been placed in any of the other episodes. It doesn't feel like it necessarily needed to be in here, but it's really good that you pulled out the connection between the two of of cleansing the sins well, that they've created. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I think the other little connection with it is um, you, you have that, that moment where Victor does say to Dr. Jekyll, it's our memories that make us monsters. And it is the idea that in then these stories being told by Ethan, it's their memories and recollections of times gone by. Uh, and this is what has hardened them into this, this monster mm-hmm. um, of Ethan, as well as for uh, Kaetne in terms of surviving um, the persecution by the US government and, and the army. Uh, and I, I think that is, um, you know, 
really, really another interesting sort of connection yeah. here that the the writers are pulling between London and, uh, dare I say it, the, the Wild West. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Really interesting stuff. That's it for our discussion about Penny Dreadful Season 3, Episode 5, This World is Our Hell. We'll take another little break and we'll be back with our discussion about Season 3, Episode 6, No Beast So Fierce. Rawr! Hi, this is Derek from TV Podcast Industries. Hi, and this is John. We hope you're keeping well during this time. I know it's really, really tough for everybody to be stuck indoors, but we wanted to say a big thank you to everyone over on our Patreon who's been supporting us for the last while. That That's what's been keeping these episodes going, our Penny Dreadful re- rewatch. And to everybody else who's been listening to us over the last six years that we've been podcasting. Um, it's been great having you on board for all these episodes. Yeah, absolutely, fellow industrialists and darklings as well, if you're tuning in just for Penny Dreadful. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a reason why I say it's been a pleasure speaking with you, uh, because it's great to be able to discuss these great TV series, movies with um, the TV podcast community, which came out of Defenders TV podcast, Gotham TV podcast, and of course, those those roots are still there with us here with TV Podcast Industries mm-hmm. uh, and hopefully bringing some new stuff. And we're so grateful for the support of the podcast, whether that's rating us, leaving a review, sharing that love or over on our recent Patreon page. It is all very much appreciated uh, and it's certainly a big thank you from us. Absolutely. And if, as always, if you want to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash TV Podcast Industry support us over there you can subscribe to the podcasts over at tvpodcastindustries.com or in any good or evil podcast catcher (laughs) (laughs) and if you want to email us with your thoughts about anything that we've covered or anything else that you want us to cover maybe email us to feedback at tvpodcastindustries.com finally you can join us on facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash tvpodcastindustries or over on twitter at tvpodindustries if you want to get in contact with us loads of ways to keep in contact with us absolutely to the social media outlets <laughs> and say hi we love when you say hi absolutely can we steal that from Laura? do you think i think so why Maggie not? won't mind he likes it when we say hello yes exactly yep and again one final big thanks for everyone who has been listening in to tv podcast industries yeah absolutely thank you and we're back with petty dreadful season three episode six no beast so fierce yes uh, the final episode of this part of our discussions about Petty Dreadful. I'm one of your hosts, Derek. Hello there, fellow Darklings. Fellow fierce Darklings. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am one of your other hosts, John. Let's jump straight into this discussion about episode six, No Beast So Fierce, once again, directed by Paco Cabezas. I'm really looking forward to seeing what he does with the Penny Dreadful City of Angels. Uh, I don't know how many episodes he's getting, but that definitely looking forward to seeing that first one because that's going to establish the whole dynamic of how that series is going to work. So hopefully he's done a good job out there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've really enjoyed uh, what he's been doing with the last couple of episodes. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I can't wait to see his take on the 1930s City of Angels. Yeah, that'll be really interesting. Uh, this episode was written once again by Andrew Hinderaker, this time with Christy Wilson-Cairns, who was also a staff writer on this season of Penny Dreadful, as I mentioned before. Uh, recently, Christy wrote the movie 1917. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's big. It is massive movie, yeah, and and working with Sam Mendes, who is an executive producer on Penny Dreadful as well. So keeping those connections alive uh, all this time after after their work on Penny Dreadful together. Yeah, great stuff. Yeah. John, do you want to give us the summary for this episode of Penny Dreadful? Sure. 
Miss Vanessa Ives seeks new help as she now knows who she is up against in the form of Dracula, the beast from the east, dare I say it. <laughs> Ethan's head-to-head with his father is interrupted by Sir Malcolm, but also as new guests show up for dinner at the Talbot family residence where tempers flare at the dinner table. Lily leads more women as she builds her army of ladies of the evening. Victor and Dr. Jekyll perfect the dose of the serum to change Lily into a pain-free being. Mm. Justine, meanwhile, oversteps her boundary and causes Dorian to question the whole endeavour. Interesting seeds as uh, tempers are flaring on two continents. Yes, definitely. (laughs) And the return of Vanessa Ives in this episode. Yes, good to see her back. Yes, definitely. And and an introduction to a very interesting new character as well. Let's get into all of the big moments from this episode. John, what's your big moment from Season 3, Episode 6? My big moment is a dinner at the Talbots. Although, quite frankly, I think it is a dinner party that I would rather not attend. Definitely. Uh, Yes, the skeletons really are taken out of the closet. There is treachery. There is a hellish grace. Leaders into temptation. Uh, There's guns. There is the return of a nightcomer in the form of Hecate. Mm -hmm. And uh, dare I say it, it all leaves a little bit of a bad taste in the mouth and bloodstains on the napkins. Um, Yeah, this really is um, the dining table shootout. Um, And it it really uh, finishes off a lot of characters here. It certainly does. But it's all kind of set up with right at the start of this episode, Inspector Rusk with uh, Marshall Ostow uh, coming to the the Talbot residence um, and with the cards ultimately stacked against uh, the two of them, Inspector Ross goes you are all under arrest Mm, Uh, and it just leaves it there and moves to London but we come back to a very awkward dinner table uh, where you have Hecate and Ethan on one side. You have Jared at the top of the the dinner table. You have Inspector Rusk and Marshall Osto on the other, and Sir Malcolm at the other end of the dinner table. Mm-hmm. And it's all fairly uneasy and a little awkward, but yeah. a nice bit of T-bone steak is there for everyone. And <laughs> um, it's very good of them, really, to be honest. Because you think about you know the last episode we had everybody chasing across the desert for days upon days, and nobody has enough water to get them to the other side of the desert um, and you know they get there what do they expect them to do you know arrest the guys and then they have that massive trudge right back across the desert after having you know not filled up so absolutely. you know what a, what a good host uh, he is a good Jared host is. yeah absolutely but i did have this written in my notes as the red wedding of penny dreadful <laughs> that is not far off yeah, it to be honest we do lose some quite big characters uh, in the episode and it comes as quite a surprise because this is a very gentlemanly dinner for a while until really I'd say the twist or the, the change in the scene is really where Jared uh, tells Ethan that he's sitting in the seat that his brother Paul sat in just before he was murdered and he forces him to say grace. And it's at that moment, finally, when Ethan is about to do it. I think the, the Sir Malcolm um, attempts to step in with this volatile situation to say, no, I'll, I'll say grace, but we have the opposite of grace. What would be the opposite of grace to say at the dinner table? Ungrace. Is it? Is it like a... Um, it's like the... It's ungrace, I suppose. Right. I don't know. Um, but it is, yes, all the the words of the grace are turned from being um, saintly 
godly uh, mm-hmm. good into devilish uh, evil uh, and and the rest of it yeah but, yeah it all kind of kicks off really because yes the big um the big thing around that dinner table is Jared Talbot and his son Ethan Talbot um and and what happens uh, and Malcolm really does try to persuade um his dad that he is a good man and this is where then everything starts to uh, be brought up um and you you almost have this awkwardness of Inspector Rusk and uh, Marshal Osto who are almost um looking in on, on this domestic that's yeah. going on um but ultimately it's Marshal Osto that is oft uh, to begin with uh, because he really does say that you are going to be arrested you know um and Jared just pulls a gun and shoots him in the forehead straight mm-hmm. off as then they all begin to tuck into their stake. So yeah, it, it is. And, and the dinner table is surrounded by Jared's um, men, mm-hmm. all with guns. So, um, you know, you, you are there. How is Ethan going to do this? Will he, won't he um, kind of uh, make his attack here? And there is that great camera moment where um, he, it, it, you see Hecate next to Ethan. It comes around to Ethan. You lose Hecate. And when it goes to the back, you have the night comer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you see, uh, Sir Malcolm and everyone's surprise as she takes a few of them out and Ethan goes to get his dad. Yeah. But that's the thing. The shootout ultimately, uh, pours into, um, the, the family chapel where the massacre originally, uh, took place. But, um, I suppose we, you know, importantly, we lose Inspector Rusk. You know, there is this standoff uh, with him, Ethan, uh, with Hecate also advancing. And and Rusk has to try and do something. So he is there with the gun at Hecate, uh, Ethan with the gun at him. And he he warns that if he moves, he will kill Hecate. But Hecate is shot here. I I was a little surprised that the gun worked so so quickly on her because I, I think guns were used in the witch's... Uh, house back in season two yeah. um to little or no effect but it, it, it may have been more that they were too quick to uh, be hit by them Maybe. I, I think it was more that but ultimately it did seem like a real surprise yeah, to dispatch her that way yeah. I- inspector rusk um does uh get the fatal shot in on hecate so we lose hecate as well and mm-hmm. um, i suppose back in the desert we do see some alchem going to shoot her so i i think it's that they um they're not immortal in that yeah. sense. So uh, Hecate is killed. And obviously with the gun trained on Hecate, Ethan fires off and kills uh, Inspector Rusk here mm. at the dinner table. Yeah, and I was thinking about this because last episode we had um, the kind of proclamation from Inspector Rusk that he was giving up all the things that he was bound to and was willing to shoot Ethan in the back. So the character that we followed from season two as the as Inspector Rusk, the man on the right side of the law, um, he's come to this, effectively to the estate, uh, with no bounds now. He's willing to do whatever it takes to take down Ethan, and it's gone far beyond the lawman that he used to be. So it's almost like he has also lost his soul on this pilgrimage to take down Ethan. Um, so while we have lost him in this episode, it feels like we kind of lost his soul last episode. In a way. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think the, the, the really nice turn here, I suppose, is that, you know, in that standoff, Inspector Rusk is saying, you know, what are you? What are you? 
it, there's, there's something he needs to know. He, he's kind of accepted, as we've seen, that there could be some supernatural element to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, he's, he's never given the answer as Hecate rushes to kill him. He kills Hecate and Ethan kills Rusk. Yeah. Um, I think in the meantime, Malcolm is um, trying to fend off a number of Jared's men. Mm-hmm. Um, and it looks like Malcolm is about to be a goner, but he is saved by Ketney, who has, in in the words of Sam Malcolm, which I really liked, I, I love this dynamic between Sam Malcolm and Ketney. Mm-hmm. He goes, I knew you'd be too mean to die. Um, <laughs> just, you know, Ketney is this persistent soul. Yeah. Which I kind of thought Inspector Rusk was as well. And I'm slightly saddened by Inspector Rusk going. Um, I I think it would have been quite interesting to have seen his character go on. But I I definitely see, you know, the situation that they put him in, uh, in terms of that triangulation of shot. Uh, He could only take out one and he took out Hecate, um, who who came upon him. Um, I think I'm just really surprised both of them are gone in this scene, you know, but... I think they're trying to roll this towards the end of the season, you know, and the end of the entire series as well. As as we know, this was supposed to be a three-season uh, arc for the Penny Dreadful storyline. So um, there are some peripheral characters here that if you're keeping them on board for the end of the season, what are you, uh, you going to be doing with them as we get towards the end of it? But I think because we had... Um, Hecate and Ethan forming their bond last episode that they were now going to be working together effectively on the path of evil. It was interesting that this quickly afterwards, Hecate's gone and Ethan is effectively left with his three fathers as the only people left alive. We have Malcolm, uh, Jared and Ketney now in the same house under the same roof. Yeah. And they're the only people really left alive that of consequence in yeah. this house. You know? Absolutely. Um, but this shootout uh, from the dinner table ends up at, uh, in, in another, on another table, ultimately the altar of God mm. in, um, the family chapel. And, um, you know, there's big shootout here. Certainly, Ethan knows how his dad will defend Mm -hmm. this this position. And so him, along with Sir Malcolm Ketney, do uh, manage to um, take down the defences. And it is that great moment, again, of carried forward, really, from the end of the last episode. Mm -hmm. Um, Will Ethan do it? Will he not? You know, Brian Cox utters the words... Are you going to gun down your father in the house of God? You know, there's a real taunting um, about how uh, Jared Talbot is speaking to his son here. Absolutely. Uh, It's weird, isn't it? Because I really don't like Jared Talbot. I don't like the character of Jared Talbot, but there's no reason not to like him. Um, He effectively has had all of his family slaughtered by the Apaches who came and attacked his house with the help of his son. And he's he's goading his son into killing him because he also wants to die almost. Yeah, I you know? think it is that. But I really don't like him like, as a as a man, probably because we've spent so much time with Ethan Yeah, um, <laughs> that I find him a horrible person anyway. So I'm kind of happy about the situation at the end. I also love that sequence at the start of that fight because we have Jared calling out from the chapel going, I'm in here alone. You come in alone, Ethan, and we'll sort this out man to man as he's putting his men all around the the chapel. But of course, Ethan's not swayed by that. And then we have the wonderful entrance from Ketney through the wall to take out two of of his men as Malcolm and Ethan come in in the same partnership that we saw back in season one when they went into the nest of vampires. This is the nest of Ethan's father's men that they're taking 
acting out in exactly the same way. So it, it's really it's a great. It's yeah. a great scene, but it, it's I just find it fascinating to myself what it says about me that I'm watching Jared waiting for him to be killed, probably because I spent more time with the other characters. But there's nothing wrong with what Jared's doing here. Um, no, absolutely, and but it it, it does. Um, yeah, I, 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 the problem is both of them want to die mm-hmm. in, in in that sense. But Ethan does pull back; he doesn't shoot um, his, his father. Yeah. Um, but you get the million dollar moment because as he's walking away, he's still taunting his son because he does want him to turn around and shoot him. Yeah. And of course, in comes Sir Malcolm with his um, firearm and just a bullet through the middle of the head. Oh my goodness. Um, and just that whole look on um, Sir Malcolm's face of, will you just shut up Absolutely. and lay down dead? Yeah. And it, it's a great great uh, money shot absolutely it, f- it feels like timothy dalton's bond again uh remember the, the the version of timothy dalton's bond that we saw back in the 80s for his two movies was a much darker version of the bond i think it's been taken on a lot more with daniel craig's bond yeah. someone that is willing to use the license to kill that he has to to actually yeah. end a, a villain, which is something that the previous Bonds wouldn't have done. Absolutely. Um, and Pierce Brosnan's Bond didn't really do as much. You saw it with Timothy Dalton. In fact, his movie was Licensed Skill. That's why it popped into my head. <laughs> um, but you saw that, that he is this person that will put an end to someone if he feels that he is rightful in doing so. Yeah. Um, what Jared was trying to get from Ethan throughout this was Ethan proving that he is the evil man that that. Jared believes he is and justifying his own hatred for his own son by him proving to him that he'd be willing to kill his own father under the eyes of God, effectively. Uh, And for him not to have that moment is almost as bad as Rusk traveling to the other end of the earth to try and find who Ethan is and what supernatural being it is that he's been facing down and not getting the answer to that before he dies as well. So two unanswered questions for two major dead characters in this episode. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um but it it is um a really great piece of action from the dinner table into mm-hmm. the chapel with so much tension, emotion, um and a great payoff uh, at the end yeah. uh, for me. So I I thought this was really good, but Definitely. as I say, I wouldn't be trotting over to the Talbots uh, for dinner anytime soon Definitely. if that's how their dinner parties <laughs> end up. Hopefully not every time I said the uh, the body count is massive. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and and also just quickly coming back to 007, dare I say it, um this is my view. Um, Timothy Dalton was ahead of his time in his portrayal of Bond. I love his two movies. Yep. Um, and yeah, I think you see that if he was doing it now as uh, Daniel Craig, yep. people would be much more accepting of it. So uh, I'm glad that he got his double O moment here yep. in taking out Jared Talbot. Without a doubt, I think at the time, and not to go into Bond too much, but I think at the time going from A View to a Kill, which is a fairly flamboyant um roger moore bond film going from that into license to kill you know roger moore was way beyond the it's age. 180 degree turn it is it that way, certainly yeah. but he was way beyond the age to play that 007 and going into timothy dalton being this kind of uh difficult bond um probably didn't play very well i didn't play very well at the time i was alive i remember it yeah <laughs> um, but 
he was a fantastic Bond, yeah. And of course, as well, he does a mean animated hedgehog and supermarket manager. <laughs> or should I say, supermarché manager. <laughs> he is a slasher of prices, after he all. Yes. Is. Um, <laughs> that is such a great film, Hot Fuzz. Uh, excellent. <laughs> anyway, uh, way too many great Timothy Dalton performances, mostly after his time on Penny's Dreadful. This, this show did set up yeah. um, some great roles for him in the, in the future, I think. Um, I'm going to go over to another very uncomfortable scene in the episode. <laughs> um, Justine um, and oh, Dorian yeah. and Lily. Uh, I have this written down as from my point as uh, Justine doesn't know her place, or is it Dorian that doesn't know his? Well, um, it was a question that we had from episode one of this season, and you know, kind of following on from the end of last season. Lily has developed as a leader of women to take out the men of London, and we were wondering, you know. Other than Dorian being a supernatural being and her being a supernatural being, what's the connection and when will the connection break? And that's kind of what we see in this episode. We see him kind of saying to her, you know, the two of us could just walk away from this and live for eternity together. And Lily saying, but that's not what I want. Yeah. He, she's trying to create a proper uprising of the women of London, the downtrodden women of London who have lived the same life that she has. And if Dorian doesn't figure into that, he may be on the spiky end of uh, of Justine's blade at the very least. And um, that moment where you have Lily training the women of the night to how they should be able to take out their johns or take out their uh, the people who are soliciting the sex from them, um, and then she shows it on Dorian, and then Justine comes in and is millimeters away <laughs> yeah. from stabbing Dorian in the throat. She got um, crazy eyes. She really she did. She really does. You know, she even calls out to uh, Lily, do you want to see him drown in his own blood? You know? And Lily's response to it being, but then who would everybody else practice on? It's kind of the, the <laughs> response, the only way she can yeah. calm Justine down almost. Because Justine is completely worked up. She's seen people like Dorian. Remember, as I, I think I described him before, as this kind of really cocky college guy who's got all the good looks, got all the women... And at this stage, he was probably paying for hookers every week. We almost see Justine refer to his first meeting with Brona, where he took photographs of her. And Justine describes it. You take photographs of these people, these hookers that you hire to pleasure yourself afterwards. You're the, exactly what's wrong with men in the city, you know, and you're seeing this two of them going almost head to head with each other. Um, it's really interesting because yeah. I don't know where it's going right now. I can't remember where it's going right now, but... I feel like if there's one person that's going to kill the immortal Dorian, it's going to be Justine. Well, certainly Dorian does need to stop volunteering to be the demonstration <laughs> mannequin yeah. for killing people. I, I would kind say. of have the feeling that um, Lily could use one of the other women of the night as practice because nobody would kill them, right? Yeah, I mean, I or she told them all that Dorian is invincible or invulnerable and he will come back from the dead if they kill him. Is that what? I, I don't think we. Yeah, we don't know that. I mean, first off, I, I think Justine plays the intensity here oh, yeah. really well. I mean, she is um she is the acolyte. She is the um the extreme acolyte who will she believes in this cause from Lily. And this is why I think that not only do I feel that Dorian is justified in, in feeling a, a little bit uh, nervous about how this whole endeavor is going and, and the the level of buy-in of uh, Lily's forgotten ladies um the army of these forgotten ladies. Mm -hmm. And but I also wonder because you know Lily does 
effectively back up Dorian here to some extent. And later on, Mm -hmm. we see her doing the same with Victor. It's kind of two times here where Justine has been denied by Lily to do something that she feels would be meaningful. Um, And I just wonder whether Lily ultimately could be putting herself within the crosshairs of Justine because Justine is so um, bought into this and that she sees ultimately the inherent hypocrisy in what Dorian is doing there. Absolutely. Um, Whereas for Lily, she probably does as well, but she also realises that the the means here of having Justine as well as Victor, that they are useful along the way. Mm -hmm. Victor to effectively reanimate um, anyone that dies along the way, I suppose. (laughs) Um, And Dorian gives her the the premises the mm. the ability to do this just seeing it here it is truly terrifying it, it shows absolutely pure ideology commitment and that fervor for what they should be doing that goes beyond the rational and um, she's a true acolyte as i say yeah uh, and she it makes her truly uh, frightening and she it's played so well that you feel dorian's unease you understand that um that he, you know and and in a sense th- there was part of me feeling that yeah i i completely agree with uh, Dorian here but at the same time not only is he feeling threatened by her but you know maybe he's just feeling a little small that actually this party that he's doing is no longer about him mm-hmm. it's not about him and he's not really seeing um, a way that he can um, get out of this in an easy way yeah. and certainly uh, with the capture of Victor when he comes to try and change um, Lily with the serum. Again, you see Justin gagging to kill uh, yeah. Victor. Well, that um, yeah. But Dorian is very quick to seize on Victor um, and to advocate that he shouldn't be killed here and then. Again, probably bringing on Justine's disapproval, but also um, make sure that he is trying to align with Victor so that maybe he has a way out here. Some kind of ally there, definitely. You know, it's a really delicate balance that Lily is playing uh, between what's going on here. You know, she, I love that moment where she kind of reveals her history. She reveals that she knows everything that happened to Brona and lives with her forever. She remembers it like it happened right now. And she points at Justine saying, and that's why I know how she feels that way, because I still feel exactly the way she does. What Dorian has missed in the transition from getting together first off with Lily up until now is the conversation that's been going on with her and everybody else that she's been getting on board is, do you remember those men that hurt you? We'll kill them. Do you remember those men that hurt you? There are other men out out there like that. Every other man is like that. And Doreen seems to have missed that transition between yeah. those those five or six people that were involved in hurting you up until now, which is every man is like that. And Dorian's in the background kind of clapping along going, yeah, I totally agree with your point of view. Yep, I'm right, right behind you. Oh, no, you now are saying all men are bad. I'm a man. Uh-oh, I need to get out of here. <laughs> he just seems to have missed that full transition between this group becoming a formidable force in London to now becoming a cult possibly going on the side of Justine, who is much more fervent in that pursuit of all men are bad than uh, than Lily is. So, 
yeah, I, I, I'm, I worry for Dorian. Uh, there is possibly an out, as you say, with uh, with Victor coming over, um, trying to, it's not very well put, trying to cure uh, Lily of all of her hurt. I don't think she was ever going to accept that. You know, I, I, again, I love the response from Lily to, no, to that, where she's saying, but it's taken me all of that hurt to become who I am. And now I'm going to make sure that never happens to anybody else. That's a, a really important thing for the yes, character of Lily. Definitely. But I, I like that there's a possible arrangement here between Victor and Dorian. I just don't imagine of all of the characters that we see in this show, I don't imagine the two of them surviving the end of season three. Yeah. But we'll see. Again, it's something that's uh, very distant in my memory is uh, the last three episodes of this season. But this is really just the genesis of this happening. So mm-hmm. I like I would say the next few episodes is going to be a little dodgy for Dorian. Definitely. Um, or dare I say it, Lily, as I say, I, I just seen we'll, we'll be going, why are you stopping us from killing these men, Lily, like Dorian or Victor? Because these are the men that you're telling us that do need to be got rid mm-hmm. of and um, they're hiding there or they're in plain sight within this organization that you're creating so i just wonder whether justine may also direct um her um fervor against lily because yeah certainly in this episode she defends two people that L- justine wants to kill yeah exactly exactly i think it might be time for dorian to rent out that uh <laughs> Upper upper flat in uh, in, in Paris, maybe. <laughs> yeah, he needs yeah. to move to his country home in the Lake District. I think. I, think. Yes. I think he does. Any notes for this episode? I thought this one had a lot more going on with all of the characters. Last episode seemed quite focused on uh, on what was going on in America, uh, whereas this episode, while it did have a lot going on uh, with the Talbot residents in America, there was a lot of other stuff going on in the UK. Um, John Clare visiting his son. Um, it's a it's a small scene in it, but. Wow, how powerful yeah, is that moment when absolutely. his son is, is kind of saying, oh, daddy, you're here finally to take care of me. I always knew he'd come back. And then his eyes open and he sees the face of John Clare yeah. and screams the house down. Um, it's heartbreaking. It really is. How, it, how it's played and, and John Clare crying in the street outside uh, after being shunned by another person uh, is really. Exactly. It's it's the. Yeah. It, it it's the curse of the creature mm-hmm. um and, and it's really touching um as well you know are you an angel he thinks that yeah. he's he he's uh, heading up to heaven really mm-hmm. um and we know from um when he was the orderly he didn't really believe in heaven he goes no and then it becomes really sad as he wakes up and sees this creature over him and he's scared and he screams out and then the impact that has on John Clare. So it like it's it's phenomenally good, really. Yeah, yeah. I think another thing we do need to do a shout out is um, you know, Mr. Lyle is effectively it's his it's his swan song, it's his farewell as he heads on an expedition to Cairo. Were um the the laws there are maybe a little more relaxed or it's the culture is more open to people like him so there will be an extension to his time yeah. in, in, in Egypt sad um, farewell to it, it is it? he's a great character yeah. and I think it would have been difficult how to have him more fully in this season but I've certainly missed him because mm-hmm. he's always provided very good relief 
um, as well as being that kind of expert in the room around all things around the occult and uh, Egypt. So yeah. it's a nice touching moment as well where he goes, think of me only when you dance. And she goes, I'll have to dance more often, yeah, which I think is really, really yeah. nice. And he, the reason he's going in the episode, because it, it's it's something that probably stood out to me more because of the rewatch as well. Um, it's something that, that she's talking about with Dracula's plan to get her separated from everybody uh, that's around, getting getting her separated from all of her real friends, that she needs to be in contact with people that she knows and people that love her and will take care of her. And she has no one left. She's lost contact with uh, with Victor. She's lost contact with uh, Ethan, who's gone over to America. Sir Malcolm's gone with him. Um, so she has none of her core group of people that were around her. Yeah. And now Mr. Lyle is also leaving. We have that scene with Vanessa trying to find someone who's a friend and she goes to Dr. Seward, which I think is interesting because the introduction from Dr. Seward at the beginning of the season was, I'm not your friend, I'm not your mother, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not anybody that should be should be taking care of you. I am a person who is a doctor who's going to cure you of your illness and that is it. And I like that they have the scene because it feels like that's a turning point in their relationship because yeah. Dr. Seward wouldn't have had her over for a glass of, of whiskey to talk about their lives. Exactly. You know? And in fairness, she does say, I'm probably not the person you need to, to be with. Mm. Um, I think the other thing with Mr. Lyle is, you know, he has introduced Vanessa to um, Dr. Seawood, but he also then introduces her to um, this new character, yeah. Catriona Hardigan, um, who studies death and um, is... The replacement for Mr. Lyle. She, a thematologist. Yes, and a thematologist. And um, she is the one that goes, he's a predator. He isolates people. He isol He's isolating you mm -hmm. to be with, surround yourself with those you love, which then I think that's a really nice kind of look back as well on season one and two with... Uh, Vanessa and the company of Sir Malcolm, Mr. Lyle, Ethan, Sembene, yeah. Victor, and so on. That it, it kind of adds almost a nostalgia back to that time, given that she's on, um, on her own. But Katrona Hardigan talks, gives the, the, the lore of Dracula, mm -hmm. uh, which is Dragon in Romanian, the Dracula clan bringing a, a, about, um, the clash of the, the Ottoman and Persian, uh, empires and, and the blood. Uh, and I, I like she, she talks about, um, him being a seducer, but it's the ancient form of the meaning of the word, which is, um, to corrupt, yes. to lead men astray, not from a, a sexual point of view. Um, so I, I think this was really good. I love her intro as well with the fencing. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was trying to think, uh, was there a literary character there that um, the, the writers were drawing from? And the only Hardigan uh, that... Um, I'm aware is the H.G. Uh, Wells time machine. The 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 inventor there is Alexander Hardigan. And oh, in the I, film, that's right. Yeah, yeah. so it could yeah. be related to H.G. Wells. I think I was more thinking. It reminded me of a Marvel character, Eliza Bloodstone, who's who's very much uh, within the mystical, uh, magical part of the Marvel right, universe. Yeah. So yeah. I I know her through the through Doctor Strange and so on. I, it felt like that kind of character, mm -hmm. and I I, I like this this character immediately uh, that she is fencing and is, is knocking uh, a. Off, uh, and being smart with 
with her fencing. Mm-hmm. I she uses her headbutt to uh, take him out, exactly, uh, which was pretty good. Yeah. I love that he says he'll be struck off the register, and she's going, "Well, if I could get on the register, then maybe <laughs> yeah, exactly." Struck off. Yeah. So it's a great introduction of, of this character. Mm-hmm. Definitely hoping to see a bit more of her. Nice to see that maybe Vanessa can build up some new friendships uh, since all of the rest of her friends are gone. With everything finished with the storyline of Ethan in the oh, US, is well, the question I had after watching the episode was, you know, they're now free of the lawmen. They're all they're all dead, effectively. Ethan's now had his father's dead, so there's nothing left there for him in the estate, and Ketney and Sir Malcolm and Ethan are there in America. I, it suddenly crossed my mind. I was going, are the two timelines going on at the same time? Like, is this attack happening over there as at the same time as everything that's going on with Vanessa? Or is there a possibility that the start of next week's episode, the three of them arrive back in London? That would be really cool, yeah. actually. I, ju- I just don't know whether they're whether they're months apart or whether there's uh, yeah. they're going to get back quickly. I doubt they're going to be able to go down to the local airport and hop on a plane back to back to London. So there's still going to be travel time, but we just don't know what the timeline is like because. I don't think there's been a letter from Sir Malcolm to Vanessa since the first episode when he was in Zanzibar, and that's presumably a few months ago. Yeah, exactly. But I, I think we can assume that they're maintaining that that contact through the written word, Maybe. dare I say it. Um, but yeah, the, the timelines aren't really that clear. Um, yeah. And I think... Uh, I think it would be great for them to be back in London to effectively help her out with, I suspect, the big showdown that is likely to happen between Vanessa and Dr. Alexander Sweet. Because mm-hmm. in that moment where she's having the conversation with Dr. Seward, um, she, Dr. Seward effectively gives Vanessa the idea that in, to not be alone, she should try and um, be with someone who she cares about and so on. And this brings her immediately to Dr. Alexander Sweet. Yeah, um, made me think that Dr. Seward probably wasn't the wor- wasn't the best person to go to ask for help. <laughs> no, and as, as he's doing his night creature exhibition, but dare I say it, we get sweet, sweet Dr. Sweet sex um, here. <laughs> Vanessa uh, and Dr. Sweet, um, yeah, having having sex in the workplace uh, so he could get fired from uh, his position <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe if he's caught by one of the night porters but i was wondering are we going to get another possession here well um I, because every time vanessa's has had sex that mm-hmm. we've seen so far it's led to um a possession a breakdown and so on and it's, i'm wondering yeah. whether this is going to be something here because she is sobbing as well while she does it yeah. initially um i think if i remember rightly so it's the relief afterwards i think is yeah when she starts to sob but you're absolutely right it's that kind of trope of horror movies that uh john logan has kind of put the spin on in this show where you know the, the character that has sex is the one that's first to die from the monsters effectively so what we do know from the conversation uh with the orderly back in episode four we know Vanessa only had sex once before going to the Institute, which was with Mina's husband, and that ended her relationship with Mina and eventually sent her to the Banning Institute. Then we know she had sex with, uh, she tried to have sex with the orderly, and he he said no, obviously, because of everything that was going on, understandably. We know she had sex with Dorian and then became possessed by uh, Lucifer. 
And now she's having sex with Dr. Sweet, who is the vampire Dracula, effectively. Yeah. So she's really, really not good at choosing partners for it's sex. good job he doesn't nibble when he has sex. Absolutely. Uh, Must have been uh, just keeping himself lying on the floor still so that he didn't go up and reach for her neck at some point, you know. Must have been don't, resisting. Don't extend teeth. Don't extend, don't extend teeth. I, I, exactly. I was wondering whether that was going to happen because there was a lot of neck showing at one point. So mm-hmm. I, I did wonder whether he would go in for the old uh, sort of big sort of neck hickey uh for uh for Vanessa but no he does restrain himself which i think is quite interesting yeah. and i do yeah. agree with Vanessa's assessment of her life uh, in that conversation back in episode 4 now uh, where she said i should have died a virgin you know just like Joan of Arc who sang while she was burning <laughs> yeah. i kind of feel like maybe that was the right way to go uh, this is this these things are not going well but it does all play into the concept that came from Dracula and from Lucifer that she must give herself over freely to them in order for them to uh, to take her as their bride, effectively, so and I uh, presume that's why Dracula is holding back here, yeah, because exactly. he she is giving herself freely, mm-hmm. um, yeah. For me, I've just got one more note, uh, and I think Renfield has a really nice oh, line wow, yeah. when uh, he's giving Dracula a bit of intel on um, on Vanessa. He says. You'll not pass me by when you distribute all the fat sweeties. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, all those lovely fat bloated, uh, industrialists, uh, and financiers from the industrial revolution yeah. all ready to be drained of their blood. And probably that scene features one of my favorite moments this season with Dracula with one kind of movement of his finger. Yeah. All the locusts that are the familiars move back from the body that they've all been drinking the blood off to leave it for Renfield. It's such a, an amazing moment how it's all choreographed so well as they all back off. Yeah, it's which just really that little nice. flick of a finger, just showing how much power Dracula has over all of them. You know, it's really yeah, really and you you get the sense here from um, Dracula that Renfield is his number two mm-hmm. in, in that sense that yeah. that you know um, he is integral to what dracula needs to do here. absolutely and he certainly is definitely it's uh it's led to vanessa giving herself over freely as as we see at the end of that scene uh, that's it for notes for this episode we're at the end of our discussion for part seven of our discussions about petty dreadful so we've talked about the middle section of season three john overall what do you think of the middle section of season three I I love these um, three episodes. I give uh, this five crazy Justines out of five. Um, Ooh, wow. I I really Strong. really enjoyed them, um, and I I think um, it was one of the things coming into season three. I was I was concerned was it going to hold up against season two or season one, or indeed hold up against my memory. But I couldn't really remember uh, too well how I really felt about this. But I think these uh, these three episodes. I I, I think the flashback is great um they've done flashbacks so well in mm-hmm. uh this series Definitely. and again it's another inspired one um i i thought the the whole western element uh, and i just think the connection uh, between Katney, Ethan, Jared, Sir Malcolm, Hecate, all that within this this chase by um by the marshals of Ethan and Hecate was just really nice. And Brian Cox, you know, comes in for um two episodes and delivers an absolute great great performance um, and, and you you really um know about Ethan from uh, the episodes yeah. and and here. 
um, with the Beast Sophia. As you say, you get the red wedding element and the conclusion of that. Um, but you, you get so many other elements here uh, with um, Vanessa, with um, Dorian and um, and Lily and, and Victor. And I just thought it was really well done. So that's for me, it's really been a great middle section uh and three episodes i've really enjoyed them that's a strong rating definitely um i've really enjoyed it there's uh, it's interesting isn't it because um people who've listened for a long time to tv podcast industries know that probably my least favorite genre of film has been comedies uh that every time we get a comedy <laughs> uh, there are things that i don't generally enjoy because they could just be a bit too broad for me sometimes i have a very weird sense of humor uh, the other genre of movies that i really really dislike are westerns they're it's just something for me because there's just so many stereotypes of westerns and having two episodes of this three set in the american west was putting me off slightly i think because of hecate being there having a supernatural character there was probably what made them above and beyond what i thought they were going to be kind of similar to maybe the the uh, from dust till dawn kind yeah. of attitude of having vampires there in, I think in that so. kind of western setting i think um, so and also I was going to say whether having Sir Malcolm, having um, Inspector Rusk there, mm-hmm. you know, they're not people of that yeah. that place, and so it gives a completely different perspective yeah. on on it whilst you're there. So, um, yeah, I, I I know what you mean, and yeah. you hate period dramas as well. So, I mean, you should technically absolutely loathe Penny Dreadful. Exactly. So, what I was going to say was, John Logan has done something for me with this show of all three seasons. He's made me like a period drama and a Western combined. So, <laughs> so well done, uh, John Logan and the other writers, because this is the other thing we said at the beginning of the series. There's a big elephant in the room with season three is that it's not worshipped, I suppose, in a way like the first two seasons where it's not looked back on very fondly. Right now, six episodes into the nine episode season, I'm really surprised at that because it really feels like Penny Dreadful and they're doing some great stuff in here. I wonder if it is just that old adage of everybody got to the end of the season and just wanted more and that's why they don't look back on season three as being great because everybody wanted more of what we'd seen of these characters so i'm really interested to see what will happen when we get on to our final part of penny dreadful season three and penny dreadful rewatch yes we'll be back next time when we talk about season three episode seven to nine the final parts of penny dreadful Thanks so much for joining us. We'll talk to you next time. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us, fellow Darklings and Nightcomers. Um, we hope you stay subscribed to the podcast. Please share us, rate us, share that love for, for podcasts and for Penny Dreadful. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you want to, head on over and you can subscribe and support us on our Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash TV podcast industries. Remember, I will think of you only when I dance. Uh, I'll have to dance more often, fellow Darklings. Mm-hmm. Let's go for it dance now john absolutely a rave absolutely see you next time bye and of course just remember keep watching keep listening and of course most definitely keep screaming keep dancing bye bye